Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Regulators and legislators in democracies around the world are increasingly introducing new policies and proposed laws to address what are seen as digital threats to democracy. But just as it is difficult to define and evaluate those threats, it's also important to consider what democratic values our institutions believe it is necessary to protect and how regulators and lawmakers conceptualize those values and translate them into policy. In August, researchers Bridget Barrett and Daniel Kreese from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Husband School of Journalism and Media joined with Catherine Kate Domit of the University of Sheffield's Department of Politics and International Relations to publish a paper in the journal Policy and Internet that took a hard look at how these values express themselves in policy documents in a paper titled The Capricious Relationship Between Technology and Democracy, Analyzing Public Policy Discussions in the UK and US. I spoke to Kate and Daniel about the research, including their findings on the lack of clarity about what democratic ideals we are trying to protect and why the policymaking discourse on tech and democracy is, quote, often out of step with the growing literature, which suggests that political conflicts between social groups, right-wing extremism, and anti-democratic actions, increasingly taken by elites and parties, are at the root of growing democratic crises, unquote. Here's Kate and Daniel. So I'm Dr. Kate Dummett. I'm at the University of Sheffield, where I'm a senior lecturer. Uh, Daniel Kreese. I'm in the Husband School of Journalism and Media and the Center of Information Technology and Public Life at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So we're going to talk today about this paper that you've produced with another author uh, as well, Bridget Barrett, looking at the intersection of technology and democracy and the discourse in policy documents on these subjects. And I think first, maybe just love to give the listener a sense of your research and how you come to this subject. So maybe Kate, we'll start with you. Yeah, so thanks. So I'm primarily a researcher, kind of have a background in studying political parties in the UK and gradually over time studied studying digital campaigning and have now got really interested in a lot of the debates about how new technology is changing and impacting on institutions and particularly political parties. Um, I think a lot of my motivation for this particular paper actually came outside of my academic work. So I was lucky enough to get appointed to a role in the UK Parliament, where I was working with a group of uh, members of the House of Lords to write a report that ended up being called The Resurrection of Trust, that was all about the impact of technology on democracy and trying to set a political agenda for what should be happening and what the UK government should be doing in the regulatory space. And as an academic, the process of observing how these politicians were thinking about technology and democracy really got me interested in these questions. And as always happens with an academic, you end up writing a paper about it. Daniel? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll just sort of add that you know, a, a bunch of the ideas that were in this paper came from a conference that Kate, Bridget, and I uh, attended in Vancouver a few years back that was uh, just a really fascinating space. There were academics there. There were, you know, people worked in government and regulatory agencies there. There were journalists there. And it struck us 
although we didn't have the ideas fully formed then, that it was unclear what people meant when they talked about democracy. It was very slippery in terms of what the problems that they were diagnosing were and how to solve it. And I, I think it was sort of that lack of clarity in general that seemed to characterize the many different conversations from many different worlds of expertise there around like, what, what should we be solving for? Um, why? Uh, and then also like conflicts just between, you know, those various forms of democracy or democratic ideals that were being invoked. So this paper sort of grew out of the conversations that we were having there. And then in the subsequent years, as we've sort of tried to get more clarity around what exactly was sort of bothering us about these slippages between the various ways people were invoking democracy and seeing technology, et cetera. And, you know, I would just sort of say is that we, this paper was really difficult to write, uh, just to let you in on the process, in, in part because there were so many different worlds that we wanted to engage with simultaneously, the academic research world, the policymaking world, and it was really sort of our attempt to bring greater clarity into the what should we be solving for debate. And honestly, I think it was so challenging in part because people are solving for a lot of different things. And oftentimes those solutions conflict with one another. And I think you see that in the policy discourse, especially in the U.S., right, where we sort of talk around. We've been talking in circles around a lot of these issues for a while, in part because there's a lack of clarity or end consensus sort of uh, around what we should be solving for and, and how and how do we value certain trade-offs of various democratic ideals over others. So, you know, this was sort of our productive attempt to try to cut through some of that noise and, and sort of crystallize some of the big concerns and big tension. So maybe before we jump into the research, I just, another kind of contextual thing that i thought to bring up, which is related to what you just said. It does feel to me when you look at a lot of the dialogue right now around this intersection of technology and democracy, I wouldn't quite call it a reckoning, but there is definitely a kind of maturing, if you will, of concerns and efforts like yours to try to pinpoint really um, exactly what it is that we're talking about here, exactly what we're trying to solve for. Do do you feel like that's true that we're in a, a kind of phase shift since 2016? I think that's a tricky one because I think that we tend to forget the history of the fact that we've had a lot of different technologies before and they've equally been very disruptive to our understandings of democracy, you know, whether that's the rise of television or, you know, this isn't new. And I think when you look at those debates that are predominantly being kind of played out in science and technology studies, the tensions between scientific progress and innovation in that space and democratic ideals and how we relate to one another and want our societies to be governed, they're pretty long-standing. Now, kind of in saying that, I definitely hear what you're saying about the fact that it feels like this particular debate around the impact of social media about big platform companies, I think that has really, really stepped up. It felt like 2016 was a turning point you know, at a, at a very base level, if you just look at the number of proposals that have been coming out around the world from governments in a whole range of different contexts that are trying to grapple with this issue of how do we put some form of democratic framework and controls around technology companies and really recognizing the huge amount of power that they exert within society, it feels like there's been a realization that there is now this new actor 
who holds a real significant amount of power in shaping how societies operate today. Uh, and I, I don't think that anyone particularly has the answer, but there's certainly a lot of interest and noise within those debates. To build off that and maybe just shift it a little bit more to specifically in the U.S. context, Justin, I, I think that where we've seen the greatest evolution of thinking has been to not as reactively and narrowly focus simply on platforms, but to consider platforms as one very important actor, as Kate just mentioned, but also among a cluster of bigger other forces like politics, like race, like contentions over social power. I think January 6th in the US was a clarifying moment. I think in a lot of ways you see there was sort of an initial Facebook brought us this, right? To, I think even over the last few months, a more nuanced understanding that there's growing extremism of an American political party that's interacting with Facebook to bring us this. So this that's a much tougher set of problems to solve, right? But I think there's a growing awareness of it. And, you know, democracies are in general ill-equipped to deal with growing extremism and anti-democratic behavior of other elites. And especially in the U.S. in a two-party system, it's very difficult to deal with this problem. So that's always been kind of the elephant in the room. But I, I do think since January 6th, there's been a greater, a greater willingness to start calling out anti-democratic extremism and its partisan dimensions in ways that I think have helpfully moved the conversation around platforms, not to let them off the hook, but to think about how they interact and what they allow through their policies and through their functions and affordances, how they interact with various other forces of extremism. And I think that's opened the, the space within which we sort of talk about what should be policymaking solutions. And even you see this among at Facebook and Twitter itself, right? The, the deplatforming of Donald Trump post-January 6th, I think was a clear recognition, right? That there is this extremism, there is this anti-democratic behavior, and we need to take action against it in ways that pushes us beyond this being simply about a free expression debate or not. I mean, look at Bolsonaro and, their, and, and the moves in Brazil yesterday, right? So I think this is increasingly coming into focus that, that these platforms can become weaponized um, by various political forces. And, and in a lot of ways, that's the real concern. So let's dive in a bit to what you did in this research. You essentially kind of, maybe for layman's purposes, I'll describe it as you, you really closely read and coded uh, multiple policy documents looking at the UK and the US. Can you talk just a second about the, about the methodology and let's talk about what you learned? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take this one. So um, effectively, we kind of did a come up with some search criteria to try and narrow down the range of documents that we were going to be looking at. So we tried to find documents that either mentioned democracy overtly uh, and then also those they also had to talk about digital technology so we used that to kind of narrow our scope and then we went through the reports that we thought were kind of substantively engaging with these topics in the most detail to make sure that we had something meaty to analyze uh, and that kind of gave us I think a total of 12 reports in memory and effectively then as you just mentioned we did effectively really close reading so 
this is kind of going through the reports, each of us multiple times. And what we were trying to do is kind of on an intuitive level go, well, what are the what are the themes that are coming up here? And we were looking for two things. So what are the democratic goals that are being cited? And what are the threats that technology is also seen to pose to democracy? And we did that process and kind of went through and then had many, many, many meetings where we chatted through the different ideas that we were coming up. We double checked the kind of same report to make sure that we were identifying the same ideas. And effectively, by a kind of process of revision, we identified these kind of six goals or democratic ideals. And then once we had those, we went through and looked and mapped the associated threats that were linked to those ideals. And once we had those, we then kind of started asking further questions about what what was being said about those ideals and those threats. And particularly, we were kind of interested in the degree to which policymakers had a consistent understanding of the ideals that we were finding and what they were particularly pointing to in terms of threats and solutions around that to just try and understand if there was consistency between the UK and the US, which are where the two documents were drawn from, but also if there was consistency across documents. Because one of the key decisions that we made is that we wouldn't just take um, policy documents that were originating from the executive, but we had reports that came from regulators, that came from legislative actors, and that also came from uh, executive actors. And that allowed us to kind of compare across those actors as well, to build up an understanding of how these themes around democracy and the threats of technology were being posed. Let me just add to, and I just like to tip my hat in a really big way to Kate, like this took hundreds of hours to, to, to do because these documents are so different. And because the UK, US documents are very different and, and the, the regulatory process looks very different and the nature of these sorts of reports look very different. You know, initially we wanted to code it quantitatively, but we sort of, we just didn't have good codes to build something, you know, deductively down to sort of just figure out how we wanted to, uh, to be able to systematically analyze it. It took a lot and a lot of time and really careful thinking through what are we looking at? How should we be conceptualizing them? And I, I'd like Kate and Bridget who, you know, led various aspects of the, of the, the empirical research component of it, I think just deserve a lot of applause for dealing with a very messy, set of data. And and also, I mean, we should say these documents are, they're policymaking documents. They're also political documents. Uh, They're produced for particular audiences in certain ways and they're performative. I mean, so they're just, it's, they're just, it's complicated to analyze. And I, I think that, you know, in the end, it was a really big interpretive task to tease out like, what was that, you know, what was the signal and a lot of noise in terms of how these things were being presented and then also to, to show like why that's consequential for the bigger policy discourse we have. Yeah, I, I took a lot of time. And I think Bridget, our, our co-author, I think had a particularly tough char- task with a lot of the US documents because you know, mainly in the UK, the kind of documents that tend to be redu- produced by parliament in particular, which are really good reviews of the area. You know, they're really beautifully written. They have really lovely introductions and they're generally a kind of, you know, 50, 60 pages at the max. 
remember having a first call with Bridget where she was looking through some of the stuff that was coming out of the US and they were just massive, ex- like extensively long and legalese documents that were very, very hard to read. And having double coded a few of them, <laughs> it wasn't the funnest experience. I have to say my experience of reading UK and EU policy documents compared to US ones is that you often emerge with the sense that there's a better understanding of these issues outside of this country in legislatures and in, in regulators. So that's kind of consistent with what a hundred percent. Yep. <laughs> if you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing, go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, Join our newsletter. So I do want to hit on the kind of six key areas or themes or ideas that you you drew out that you saw as the kind of common set of concerns more or less expressed across the different reports you looked at. But I want to maybe just drill in a little bit on this idea of the tension or the kind of, I guess, waiting that you saw policymakers giving to one set of threats to democracy versus another. You point out that there's a lot of concern over epistemological or epistemic uh, issues as opposed to other concerns that, that might dominate like racial justice, social inequality, and that that shapes policy interventions. And I think we all kind of like intuitively know that you know a lot of people seem to have this idea that if folks just have all the right information, if if there weren't so much misinformation on Facebook, you know, democracy would work just fine. Why does that seem to be a suspect conclusion? I think in in general, um, one thing that was very clear across all these documents in in both the U.S. and the U.K. is, you know, there's this kind of folk theory of democracy that you know people. They desire to be informed citizens. They desire to make good decisions based on on clear evidence and and good information. If they were just simply provided with with good information, um, they would you know see the world in a particular fact based way. That there would be sort of you know there'd be solidarity. People would consider the general interest, long term problems, and you know ultimately sort of come to consensus. One of the things that we tried to do in the in the paper is contrast that that folk theory, which is a term that comes from from a political scientist in the, in the U.S. sort of capturing that rational citizen model, but comparing that folk theory with like what the political science literatures in our in the U.S. and U.K. say, actually are the key drivers of elections. And I think if there's any very consistent story that emerged from 2016, and you know we're still getting research in from 2020, but everything sort of points in a very consistent dimension that what drives a lot of politics in the US and UK are social identities, um, that there's different social groups in society. You have cleavages around race and ethnicity, but also class, geography, education, religious, uh, you know, religious behavior, religious identity. And these varying groups see themselves as distinct and different from other groups. And they also become sorted in political parties in various ways. So in the U.S., for instance, we have two very distinct political parties. 
that the political scientist uh, Liliana Mason has has said is a mega identity that a lot of identity groups are fit within. So the Republican Party is predominantly white, predominantly rural. It's predominantly Christian. The Democratic Party is more multi-ethnic. It's more urban and it's more secular. So when you have the two parties that are cleaved on this very fundamental dimension, you get very distinct forms of politics and often increased sort of affective or social polarization that comes with that. And we found in general across these policy documents that that's not being addressed, right? These underlying drivers of a lot of the dynamics that we see are just not registering in this broader discussion around the role that technology plays in political life. And And this is real consequences, right? So if you're solving less for information and more for these identitarian aspects of elections, this is where what you might say, you know, to take Trump, for example. So this is like a very clear, I think, failure on the platform companies in the 2020 elections, right? So Trump for months walked the line of, from a platform company's perspective, of delegitimizing the election, right? Stretching all the way back to spring of 2020 telling his supporters repeatedly that black and brown people will be casting fraudulent votes, that you can't trust mail-in votes, that you can't trust votes that are coming from urban areas, right? That's Those are a clear set of identity appeals to whites in the Republican Party. You know, Facebook, Twitter, hemmed and hawed on this, is it misinformation or not, et cetera. But through an identitarian lens, basically what Trump was doing was saying to his predominantly white supporters, you can't trust the outcome of this election because people who are not like you, right, are going to be voting fraudulently in that election and they're taking your country from you, right? That's an identitarian appeal. And in fact, you know, the New York Times has that amazing January 6th documentary and it opens with a set of, of interviews that the Times reporters did or, or audio that they heard where people literally talked about that they're fighting for their way of life right? That's not a problem of good or bad information. That's a problem of politicians and elites stoking hard divisions and saying the other side is illegitimate. This is about your social status and your social power as white Americans that is under threat from you and that you have to defend. It's a very different set of problems than one that's being addressed in the majority of the literature and particularly a different set of problems than that informed citizen problem. Now, of course, good information plays into that. But at the end of the day, what's being cleaved there is a set of social divisions. Those divisions are being um, reified, made more potent by elites who are telling very clear and consistent stories and not necessarily factual or unfactual stories. They're telling stories about some social groups are being divested of their power and they need to defend it. So let's talk a little bit about the six key ideals that you did see the policymakers uh, and regulators that produce these documents trying to codify. Kate, do you want to kind of walk us through those? Yeah. So I think it's worth kind of teasing them apart because I think, you know, we've got on this one hand what Daniel's been saying, which is a lot of these ideals that they are utopian. Okay. So what we're talking about here is, we came up with six, transparency, accountability, engagement, an informed public, social solidarity, and freedom of expression. And they're very idealized. Uh, and, you know, as, as Daniel said, very divorced from reality, but 
what we found when we were then exploring these ideas is that actually there wasn't consensus even about what was ideal practice. So a problem with a lot of terms like this is they're almost kind of self-evident goods. They're very vacuous. They can be, you know, underpinned by a a variety of different meanings, actually. And so, you know, you can talk about engagement and think you're talking about the same thing, but actually be advancing very, very different ideas. So we were interested in whether that was happening. So, you know, even at an idealized level, is there a consistent ideal that's being pursued? And what we found is that for two of our uh, principles, there was consistency. So uh, around transparency and accountability, you know, the idea that there should be information available um, and that powerful actors should be held to account are just were routinely encountered throughout the documents in both of our cases. But there started to be unacknowledged differences for the other variables. So, you know, things like engagement, some people were focused purely on electoral engagement and the, the threats that technology was posing to that, whereas others were offering an almost kind of deliberative account of what a participating citizen should be doing and you know how they should be active and having political conversations in a certain kind of way and that that was being threatened by what was happening with technology so we kind of found a lot of different views that are evident and some of them are differences between countries so you know freedom of expression is understood quite differently in the UK to the way it is in the US but we found that interesting. And I think like, this is the kind of key point I want to make is, is why does this stuff matter? You know, does it matter if politicians are, are talking past one another? Well, we think it does, because if you're trying to regulate in this space, which we know is really hard, then you need to have a kind of consistent understanding of what it is that you're trying to promote. So, you know, are you trying to solve the problem of voting? Are you trying to solve the problem of a really inclusive debate where, you know, people don't experience or have difficult uh, encounters in terms of public debate and it's, it's very inclusive? You really need to understand that in order to kind of make sure that you're coming up with solutions that aren't going to like, rub up against one another when they're put into practice. So we kind of identified areas of tension between some of these different understandings of the principles that just aren't being reconciled at the moment. So let's take that kind of freedom of expression that could run directly in contrast to some of the types of inclusive debate that people were trying to promote. And at the moment, we didn't find evidence of discussions around how you reconcile those things. So you potentially have one piece of legislation promoting a certain understanding of freedom of expression and another pushing a very different vision of inclusive debate and no, no bridging rationale or you know, practical solutions for how these things map out in practice. And that just means that a lot of the attempts to actually solve these issues and to resolve the threats that we're finding are likely to run into real difficulties because kind of when it comes down to the, the nitty gritty of actually, well, what should triumph here? We don't know because there isn't a clear and consistent conception of democracy. So it's a, it's a big problem that we kind of think is quite unacknowledged within current debates because everyone's just assuming that they're talking about the same things when they use this terminology. So with regard to 
that tension, particularly between something like informed public and freedom of expression, which seem to be, you know, very deeply attention. And here in the United States, for instance, I would think that your paper kind of points towards we should be trying to figure out how to instrument and measure that tension uh, more. Do you, do you think that, that that's one of the things that could come out of this, that perhaps regulators should be looking at that tension and trying to disentangle it somewhat to figure out how to make better rules? They definitely need to think about this, about tensions, but I think it, for me, I would say this because I'm an academic, so I have the luxury of being able to do this, but like, where is the space where policymakers are actually standing back and going, this is my vision of democracy. Like, this is what I'm fighting for. And it's really first principles, but there are very few spaces in which those kind of foundational discussions actually happen. And for me, I think that's what I would encourage policymakers and regulators to be doing is, it goes back to the question Daniel said at the beginning, like, what are you solving for? And what is your ideal vision of how these ideals operate in practice? And can you articulate that? And I think once we have that, you know, really clear standard and set of benchmarks, then I think it becomes more obvious to identify instances where there's kind of departures from those ideals or where an action is potentially going to stand in contrast to one aspect of that. So it helps you identify problems a little bit better. But at the moment, I think just the process of even understanding that there's a tension is quite difficult because there's a lot of ambiguity about that question. Well, what are you solving for? Part of the challenge with doing research here, too, is that a lot of the questions here are questions of values and how you prioritize certain values. So, so let's take what you mentioned, like that, that conflict between freedom of expression and an informed public, right? What value should be primary is not something that research is ever going to offer up, right? This is like Kate's point, is that we need a societal conversation. We need a public policy conversation. We need a academic and practitioner and advocacy conversation that convenes and says, look, you know, there are many different values. Sometimes they come in conflict with one another. And we need to have a, a sensible set of rules that says, sometimes we're going to prioritize some values over the other. Sometimes this value has a particular set of concerns and we need to regulate it in some particular way in order to promote other values. So, so to get more specific here, like that tension between freedom of expression and an informed public, right? So these two things are very clearly in opposition to one another. If people can say, let's take social media, like if Facebook just said anything goes all the time, you're free to express yourself, including express your opinion that you know, you can vote any day of the week at any time. And, you know, we're just going to let all that slide, even if it's deliberate voter misinformation, that certainly would undermine that value of an informed public and would also undermine people's other people's voices at the ballot box. Right. So like Facebook has a clear set of decisions there to make to say, we might need to put guardrails around how far freedom of expression go for an individual in order to protect other individuals' right to expression, including at the ballot box, right? This is, this is, in essence, what I take to be a more nuanced way of thinking through these values and when certain values should have priority. So Bolsonaro, again, to go back to this, the social media law that they passed yesterday was expressly defended on grounds of freedom of expression, right? 
But what that means is that for politicians who are exerting their right to freedom of expression, that might be undermining their accountability at the ballot box. And their expression might be undermining voters' ability to express themselves at the ballot box. So these are exactly those hard and nuanced trade-offs that platforms need to think deeply about. And as a society, we need to think deeply about. We shouldn't be elevating freedom of expression above and beyond every other value that we have in democracies. Accountability is important, right? Balancing some people's freedom of expression against other people's freedom of expression is deeply uh, important. So we need to have that nuanced conversation. And this is why I think the research is so hard because we're really in the realm of values and what we should prioritize. And it can't be absolute. And we can't, I think so often in the US, we've said freedom of expression is paramount over every other right or norm or value democratic citizens might have, even if that necessarily undermines people's ability to express themselves or engage in other very fundamental democratic actions. You do conclude on on some level looking at, well, we've kind of already talked about this idea of the extent to which digital technology, social media is seen as the driver of some of the the problems in democracy or the the trends that we're concerned about, whereas perhaps we should be looking at more social roots or institutional roots, as you point out. But you say that there is a need for policymakers to more concertedly consider the relationship between democracy and technology. Do you have any, any ideas there about what they should be doing? I mean, you've just said maybe one of the first steps is clarify what you mean by democracy and clarify those values. Uh, is there anything else that you can imagine that, that they should be doing at this point before they turn their ire on the social media companies? I think from my perspective, especially kind of having had an insight into the policy debate and the way that these things tend to play out, is that there almost needs to be a like a recognition that different parts of the policymaking process are coming at it at this with really different perspectives. So Within the UK, there's a whole kind of strand of legislation being planned to mitigate harm around the impact of tech. But there's also another strand that's all about maximizing economic benefits from tech to the state. And they just don't really talk to one another, those two debates. They're seen as completely separate things. So I think as, as well as kind of clarifying what the kind of democratic goal you're solving for is for, it's also about thinking about not seeing this as like a a siloed media issue. You know, this isn't just about the latest media technology. It is something that is a broader societal issue and thinking about it at that level and not just trying to bracket it off. Because I think if we do that, then, you know, economic policy isn't going to reflect the democratic goals that are being pursued by other actors. So thinking about this as not just exclusively a platform problem and thinking about this as a democratic problem, I think the the place that I would immediately go to is in the US, we need stronger protections for voter for voting rights. And we need stronger protections against speech that looks to undermine politicians' accountability at the ballot box. And that's not exclusively a Facebook or a Twitter problem. We have a, a mess of state laws. Um, we don't have a federal law uh, around things like like voter suppression. Um, we don't have a lot of clarity around this, you know, where are the tensions between freedom of expression versus the freedom to express oneself at the ballot box. Like there's a lot of bigger picture thinking about how we expand access to voting 
to protect those rights and also to ensure um, that politicians are not empowered to undermine their own accountability, right? So what I would say is the first step to address would be that larger framework of concerns over accountability in democratic processes and democratic life, and then apply those things to tech companies as well, right? So that if, if Facebook was given more guidance around what would be voter suppression or, you know, voter suppressing speech, if Facebook was given more guidelines around what should politicians not be able to do when it comes to undermining their own accountability at the ballot box, what should Facebook do to ensure that people are empowered to exercise their right to vote, I think Facebook would find it easier then to not only set, but adhere to the policies that they that they ultimately come up with. Now, I think part of the challenge here, though, is that one reason why the conversation has been so platform and tech centric is because a lot of these are political problems and politicians and policymakers tend not to deal well with political problems. Like we're all talking about Facebook and Twitter because it's easy, right? Both parties can hate Facebook and Twitter and every other social media platform, right? It's a lot harder to condemn extremism within a political party. It's a lot harder to point to various social tensions that exist in, in society that drive anti-democratic behavior. And I think that's one reason why the policy discourse has been focused on, on what it is, because in essence, we're asking policymakers to help regulate themselves. And you know that fundamentally is, is where a big part of this problem lies. Is there, I, you almost sound like Nick Clegg, Daniel. I'll tell you, <laughs> I've got to come around to, to his point of view, you know, please give us the guardrails, give us the rules and we'll, we'll comply on some level. I have to respond to the Nick Clegg comment and, and then <laughs> Kate, please. So I do have some sympathy for Facebook. I, I do think they do need that. They do need that clarity. Yeah. However, uh, I think a, a massive failure of, of Facebook and other tech companies has been, they were way too late in the game in setting rules around things like electoral integrity and also health misinformation. And I would carve those two things out as being like bright red lines that they should take a lot of action on because they are ultimately responsible and should be held accountable for the role of those platforms in enabling that undermining of democratic accountability at the ballot box. Um, so not only were they late in the game, but as we saw in 2020, they were very reluctant to enforce their own rules against powerful politicians who repeatedly violated them, right? And this is, you know, going back to Donald Trump as being the, the key case is that why did it take January 6th for them to actually put robust measures in place when this had been months in the making? Like we knew this. And in fact, there were lots of other solutions they could have engaged in. So my colleague, Mike Anony and I called Facebook to put Donald Trump on a, a time delay so that his posts would be reviewed to make sure that they were in accordance with their various civic integrity processes um, before they were allowed to be posted. Had we had these measures in place, right, I, I think we would have had a different set of social outcomes or at least mitigated some of those social outcomes given how powerful deplatforming is. This is a clear failure on their part. I, I don't think anything that Nick Clegg has said or anyone else at Facebook has fully responded to or justified their role in enabling Trump to create the context for what happened on January 6th. They're clearly responsible for that and should be held accountable for that. 
It's nice to end with a reference to Nick Clegg because he used to be a MP for the constituency where my university is based. So small world. So the thing I would end on is that I think the challenge with writing papers like the one that we've uh, we've put together is that you really end up feeling like you're sticking the boot into policymakers and pointing out all of their flaws. And I think just to end by kind of going as much as we are doing that, we also do recognize that there is a hell of a lot of work that is being done in this space. And there have been some like very impressive proposals that have been put out there and drawn together. Uh, It's just about kind of thinking about how we can make sure that those proposals are as robust and resilient as they can be in the future. And the kind of work that we're trying to advocate for in terms of really thinking about those ideals and thinking about actually how ideals reflect realities is about making sure that the policies that are put in place and that do shape the way that technology is governed for the coming decades to come, like really reflect the actual problems and have a really clear vision that can be built on and built on as technology continues to evolve, because this problem is not going to go away. I think we'll probably be having this conversation for quite some time, and I hope that we'll have it together again. Kate and Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And of course, thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.